Greetings all, it's Doug Taylor. I want to do a sound check. Can you hear me clearly? Wonderful. Linda, Mona, Pat, Pamela, welcome. Great to have you here. Welcome to uh, session five of um, Fundamentals of Torah for Non-Jews. Um, I appreciate your flexibility in uh, uh, with regard to last week. I also want to just before we get too far touch base on the scheduling, we will have a class today right now. We will not have a class next week, but we will resume the following week. So that would be Sunday, December 7th. There will be no fundamentals class, and then we should pick up and be pretty good through uh, December. So uh, if you could make a note of that, I appreciate your uh, your help and your flexibility on that. Uh, let me get my other recorder running here. Okay. Um, so we're at class number five, and uh, I'd like to cover a couple things first. First, uh, for whatever reason, I was not able to get the slides to uh, load onto the system, but we're going to do something a little bit different, at least for part of our time uh, tonight, which probably won't make a difference on that. I do want to do what we have done in the past, and that is do a brief review of material that we uh, covered in our last couple of classes, uh, because the information is, uh, is so important and because uh, as we discussed two weeks ago, review uh, can make a huge difference in our learning. We've been talking over our last two sessions together about nine tools of Torah, nine uh, techniques or pieces of information or uh, ways that we can enhance our learning. And the first of those, as we've touched on before, is the need to ask questions. Uh, as we discussed, our society does not exactly promulgate this. In fact, we're sort of taught in many areas of society not to ask questions. But questions are our perhaps most important tool of learning. We need to question everything, right up to and including, you know, the existence of God, so that we can know and understand what we think, not just believe something arbitrarily. And it's questions that can lead to the answers on that and make an idea very clear to us. We also discussed that wisdom is the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. When we see the consequences in the future of our behavior now and act on those potential consequences, then we are considering ourselves to be wise. Uh, many people operate on the basis of the immediate, the now, what feels good to me at this moment, what I want right now in, in a, uh, you know, if I was uh, struggling with my weight, you know, I might say, gee, I want the cheesecake now, and I don't really care about my, my weight. On the other hand, uh, the person that's looking at consequences might say, gee, I give up the taste now, but down the road that will be, you know, a pound less that I have to lose or it will keep, uh, keep me healthier or whatever it might be. Uh, when we act on the basis of those consequences, that can make a huge difference in our lives. And that goes with everything from, you know, how we treat ourselves in diet and food and exercise to how we spend our time, our leisure time, uh, what kind of employment we take on, uh, that kind of thing. For example, if I have 
opportunities for different kinds of employment and I want to be involved in learning and one of them is going to monopolize all of my time but pays more money. The other is, you know, a 40-hour-a-week job but leaves me free time to be able to be involved in learning but pays less money, then I might look at my financial circumstances and say, gee, can I live on the less money because in the long run, 30 years from now, is that going to give me the kind of life uh, style that I will have wanted in the way that I have the opportunity to spend my time uh, over that period. So wisdom is the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. We also discussed that the only way we make real behavior change is when an idea is clear to our mind. And that's why questions are so important, because when we go over and over an idea uh, and make it very clear to our mind, that changes our behavior in a real way. We discussed that, yes, we can get behavior change uh, in, in different kinds of ways. We can, you know, threaten to fire somebody and get them to change or whatever, but that doesn't make a real behavior change. It just changes activity that we get from that individual. Uh, and so by making the ideas clear to us, that's when they really begin to affect us. And we do that by leading with our intellect. Uh, in our society, we tend often to uh, you know, lead with our emotions, or I can't speak about all of us, but people in general tend to lead with their emotions sometimes rather than their intellect. And we want to turn that around so that we are um, leading with our intellect and getting our emotions to support the analyses and decisions that our minds have clearly made. We also discussed that it's better to understand one idea clearly than many ideas superficially. And instead of trying to cover a lot of ground, it's better to just delve into one thing and think deeply about it so that idea really begins to affect us. Very closely related to the idea that when an idea is clear to our mind, that's when our real change happens. And that can happen by focusing very clearly on that. And another way that we do that is through one of the other tools that we have, which is the tool of review. Uh, when we go over and over correct ideas, uh, and begin to see them more clearly, that's when the real change happens. And review, importantly, is not about rote memorization or just repeating from memory what we learned. It's about going back to the beginning and going through all the steps, every one at a time, and seeing the information as if it was brand new. I happened to be talking this afternoon with a mathematics teacher uh, who was explaining that some students think they can do the work in their minds instead of writing down the steps on paper. But what you end up doing sometimes when you do that is, without really realizing it, you think you know it, but you skip steps. And that's why going over and over each step from the beginning without skipping any of them is so very important because that clearly shows us then, uh, or can show us what's true. We also went through a little uh, example about differentiating between facts and interpretations. Uh, and the importance that police officers have in doing that, and all of us do, uh, as we look at various situations, we have to separate what's my emotional projection on this from what are the actual facts in the case. Uh, and then we also discussed understanding the real purpose of guilt. Uh, what we said was that guilt is there to prompt us to do an investigation to determine whether or not we did the right thing. Guilt is not there to determine whether or not we did the right thing, because as we pointed out 
many people feel guilty about things they haven't done or whatever that have no real basis in any cosmic reality, uh, but it just happens to be, you know, maybe an idea that I've had or some uh, standard that someone set for me or the idea, for example, that I have to vacuum my house once a week. Um, it's, it's not about guilt around that. It's simply about seeing consequences. Yeah, I can choose not to vacuum my house, and after a while it will get dusty, and then I'll have to deal with it. There's no guilt involved. Um, so guilt is just to prompt us a little prick to uh, get us to do that rational investigation to determine whether or not we did the right thing. And then finally, we talked about being realistic and enjoying learning. Uh, one of our biggest challenges in life, I think, is to understand and accept reality uh, and just work with that uh, rather than wishing things would be different or living my life, uh, you know, for the day when things are different. Um, my, uh, my father, may he rest in peace, said, you know, uh, raising children is a, is a whole series of I'll be happy when. You know, I'll be happy when they're when they can walk. I'll be happy when they're out of diapers. I'll be happy when they're you know in school. I'll be happy when they're out of school and through college. I'll be happy when they're out on their own. I'll be happy when they're successfully married. And finally, interestingly, uh, the end one being I'll be happy when the kids come to visit. Uh, so we can live our lives. Uh, out in the future, but the Torah approach would be to be very realistic about the way the world is uh, and appreciate that now and enjoy the process of learning, just being involved in these classes and exchanging ideas and thinking about these things. There is no requirement that we have to finish uh, in any of this, uh, but we're also not allowed to, uh, to quit. You know, we have to be on the path and involved and just enjoying that learning process with the curiosity that we had as a child uh, can be enormously satisfying. Uh, and I'll submit to you that that is the real, um, uh, the, the place where man really fulfills his true nature, is being involved in the world of ideas and the world of learning. You know, if you have a dog, the dog's happy if you scratch it and it gets fed and gets to go out for a run every day and, and sleeps a lot. Uh, and different animals are very comfortable in their own habitats. The, the question is, you know, where is man happy? And I would suggest to you that we are at our, our happiest and really uh, following what God intended for us to be when we're involved in the world of learning. Uh, we, we have that capability that differentiates us from the animals, and it's one of the most enjoyable activities that we can be involved in. So before I go on, any questions on any of those principles or anything that we have uh, touched on up till now? Okay, I'll take uh, no response as a, uh, as a no. Um, I'd like to divert a little bit from what I had planned to cover and touch on a different subject, although we, we may get back to our regular curriculum uh, a little later on, uh, depending on our time. But Rabbi Israel Chait, uh, who is a, a friend, a mentor, and uh, my 
personal ultimate uh, rabbinic halakhic authority and one of the greatest Torah scholars that I've ever met, was, I believe, quoting Rashi on a tape once when he said that when an issue or a question in Torah comes your way, you should address it. You should take advantage of it. Uh, and, and we could perhaps say that slightly differently to say that when a question comes up, there's an opportunity for learning in front of us uh, by digging into an issue. So I would like to touch on some uh, current events and an issue that surrounds those that I think is very important for this class. Uh, I'm guessing that all of you have been following the very tragic events that have unfolded this past week uh, in Mumbai, India. Uh, the massive killing of civilians, uh, mostly Indian, but including uh, some Americans, some people from other countries, uh, a number of Jewish people, uh, is very, very difficult to fathom, uh, hard to understand, uh, and, and just an incredibly sad and, and awful event. Uh, you've also probably followed that the um, amongst the dead are Rabbi Holtzberg and his wife, uh, plus I think possibly another rabbi uh, and several others in a place called the Chabad House uh, in Mumbai, which is a uh, I guess you could call it sort of a, a local the local Jewish center uh, and a place where wayfarers and people traveling through. Uh, could stop. Um, while there have been many people who died in those attacks, uh, and again they were mostly Indians, although there did seem from the news reports uh, some attempt by the terrorists to target uh, Americans and British citizens, um, I don't know the individual stories behind each of those people, and, and you can be assured that there is a story behind every person who died uh, in that situation, uh, the uh, the victims, uh, wives and mothers and fathers and husbands uh, and loved ones who are lost, friends and relatives who are never going to uh, see these people anymore. Uh, there's more grief than uh, we can likely imagine. And, and when the numbers start to get large, it becomes uh, very difficult to remember that every one of those people has a story and every one of those people probably has family and loved ones and is going to be missed and, and so forth. Um, but based on those reports, I did learn some information about Rabbi Holzberg and his wife. Um, Rabbi Holzberg was 29 and his wife was 28. Uh, and from everything that I can gather, they were models of kindness uh, and service to others. Um, I read one report where uh, there was an indication a Jewish fellow traveling through stopped, and apparently if you stopped, you know, you could have a meal there. And sometimes there would perhaps be as many as 30 people uh, joining for a meal uh, there. And as one gentleman asked Rabbi Holzberg, apparently, well, where do you get kosher meat here? And Rabbi Holzberg replied, I... I uh, Shechet, if that's the right use of the word, the, the verb means to kosher slaughter. He himself slaughtered a hundred chickens a week in order to provide meat for meat meals, and his wife would make bread, uh, and uh, he would say words of Torah 
uh, for those people who would, you know, travel through, Jewish apparently or not, observant or not, um, didn't really matter. And I must admit, I found myself very disturbed by the whole business, not to mention the, the death of this, uh, you know, very kind rabbi. And it raises, a, a, I think, a very obvious question. Given such huge acts of kindness, of, of the type that are reminiscent of Avraham, you know, when, when uh, he would wait out, um, in the desert for travelers to come by. And, and even as he read in, in uh, Genesis, after he had been circumcised, you know, on the third day when it's the most painful. And, you know, in those days they didn't have uh, painkillers like we do. Uh, and it's a hot day and, you know, he's out there, yet there were strangers that came by and he ran to greet them. Uh, and if you read that, that particular section of Genesis, you'll find a lot of references to running and rushing. Uh, the, and I think Jack has, has covered some of this in, uh, in his class on uh, chesed, on kindness. You know, he ran to, uh, to, to greet the people and ran to make preparations and got other people running. Imagine this after he self-circumcised himself or been circumcised and he's three days into this. Given that, you know, that kind of kindness that these people in Mumbai were, were uh, providing for other people, how is it that they could die? I mean, and at such a young age. I mean, how could something like this happen? And it's, a, it's sort of a micro version of the age-old question of why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, and it would be very easy to ask, how could the creator of the universe uh, allow such, such a thing? And so given these events, I'd like to delve into that just a little bit. Uh, this is a very, very important question. And it requires that just as we did in the first part of this course, we need to go back to the very beginning of, of the issue. Uh, and I, I need to add that what I'm about to share with you are ideas that I learned from Rabbi Chait. Uh, and are available on his Noahide recordings, which are available through uh, www.ybt.org. Um, so let's go back to our first tool that we just reviewed, which is the need to ask questions. And let's see what kind of questions that we could ask around this situation. We could certainly ask why things like this happened and why God would allow it. But let's go way before that and try to set a foundation first. And I, I'd like to take an even more basic question, and that is, what kind of a world did God create? What kind of a world did God create for us? If we look around, we realize that God created a world of systems. We've talked about this a little bit before. We don't see a bunch of randomness out there but rather we see that things work in a particular way. We have systems in our bodies, the respiratory, respiratory, circulatory, digestive, nervous, reproductive, and so forth. Um, there are external systems like weather and tides and the whole system of nature and animals and gravity and those kinds of things. <coughs> Excuse me. 
So we've got a, a world that's created, our Earth and the, world, the practical daily world that we live in, with a lot of systems in place. So the next question that we might then ask is, well, how does a human being interact with those systems? And I'd suggest that that depends on the system. Uh, you know, we would certainly interact with one system differently than we would interact with another. Uh, but what does seem universal is that knowledge of the system is necessary in order to achieve the best results when you're interacting with that system. So, for example, when I, if I walk into a den of hungry lions, that may not be the very best thing to do if I want to prolong my life. You know, because those lions are probably going to say, aha, here's dinner. And similarly, jumping off a 200-foot cliff without any special gear is probably going to result in a fairly predictable outcome at the bottom for me. Because we know gravity operates in a certain way. And by learning that, we know that it's probably going to be fatal if I step off that 200-foot cliff. It's probably going to be fatal if I step in front of a Mack truck going 60 miles an hour on the freeway. Um, it's probably going to be really unwise to be in the vicinity of a hurricane when one comes by. And so the more we learn about those systems, the better results that we can have in interacting with them. And so I would suggest to you that God created these systems and left it to us to use our rational minds to work with them. Now, given that, think about how we would respond to someone who said, gee, here's a guy who jumped off a 10-story building and he died. How could God allow such a thing to happen? And he was such a nice guy, too. We would probably say, well, come on. The guy jumped off the 10-story building. You know, of course he's going to die. What would you expect? We wouldn't turn around and say, well, how could God allow such a thing to happen? According to Torah, God put man in a rational world and gave him a rational mind and expects him to use it. So man has to use that rational mind, not his emotions, to figure out how the world works. And then we have to act accordingly. And that's how we can be successful. Uh, it would be virtually impossible for God to make a rational world and then have that world work irrationally. So, for example, if a guy jumps off a 10-story building and just lands gently, you know, or bounces, then the world wouldn't be working in accordance with the laws as God set it up. Now, this is true with the physical world and, by the way, with the psychological world as well. It's all set up to run in accordance with the laws of nature. And if God interrupted that, then how would man meet the challenge of operating in a rational world? Because if every time somebody jumps off a cliff or stands in the way of a speeding freight train, they're miraculously saved, then suddenly you don't have laws uh, of nature that work in a, in a rational way anymore. So, for example, as a, consider this. 
So let's suppose that someone starts consuming nothing but junk food starting at age 10. Literally, I mean nothing but junk food. You can likely expect that by the time they're, say, 30, they're probably going to be pretty close to death, or at least in very poor health. Now, at that point, if we said, well, how could God allow such a thing to happen to this nice person? It would be almost a nonsensical question. We would say, well, of course it's going to happen. That person is simply reaping the logical consequences of their behavior. They have plenty of opportunity to do something about it. It's very well known what junk food will do you over a long period of time. And they didn't. So they're left with the consequences. God doesn't intervene, generally speaking, in the systems that he gave to us because the challenge is for us to apply our rational thinking to those systems, learn how they work, and work within them. And again, if God kept changing the rules, then we wouldn't live in a rational world. Because, for example, that would mean sometimes gravity causes things to hit the ground, and sometimes it doesn't. Or crops would grow even if no one planted them. You know, because after all, how could God let someone go hungry and die? So that is the world that we live in. Uh, you know, automobiles wouldn't work the way the drivers directed them to otherwise, because if an accident was about to happen, the car would suddenly do something different to avoid the accident. And if God were to do all that, there wouldn't be systems. There would only be this hodgepodge of occurrences that wouldn't make any sense. And if that were to happen, the consequences for a fool would be the same as the consequences for a wise person. Everyone would get the same results, which again, you wouldn't have a rational system. Now, with that as background, Torah identifies two responsible entities. One is an individual person, and the other is a society. And we've touched on the seven Noahide laws, and we're going to go over them in more detail, uh, either starting at near the end of this class or beginning next time. Uh, but you'll notice that of those seven Noahide laws, they reflect this idea that there are two kinds of responsible entities. Six of those laws are for individuals, the six prohibitions, and the seventh law about establishing courts is given to the society. A society is a responsible entity, and it makes decisions, and those decisions have consequences. And as a responsible entity, that can, society can make wise decisions and have good consequences, or it can make unwise decisions and have bad or negative or harmful consequences. Societies, for example, can kill innocent people. And we've seen examples of this down through history. Now, if God intervened every time a society was about to do a harmful thing, then we're back to the same problem that we just ran into before, and that is we wouldn't have a rational world. And, and you know, you would you'd have the same problem as if asking God to intervene in the laws of nature to save individual people. So if every time man, on either an individual basis or a societal basis, was about to seduce something harmful or senseless, it wouldn't be a rational world if God intervened in that. And it would be impossible for this to happen because God made a rational world and he decreed that it should operate in a rational way. 
So, I mean, he couldn't make it in a way that he didn't intend to make it. Now, the Talmud states that the righteous are taken by the sins of the generation, which I understand to mean means that a righteous person can die because of the societal decisions made at that time. Uh, otherwise, societies wouldn't be responsible for their actions. But again, that's not the way God set things up. And we as individuals and societies as groups are held responsible for their actions. Okay? Any, any questions on this so far before I go on? Okay, so that brings us to India, or could be the United States, could be any spot in the world. If the society that we're talking about, whichever one, some society in the world, allows groups to exist that advocate the senseless slaughter of civilians and women and children, and those societies do not take all of the rational steps available to them to stop those groups, then there are consequences. And the consequences are that innocent people can die. You may recall the story when uh, Abraham had a dialogue with God uh, about, uh, you know, how many people do there need to be in the society before you won't destroy it. And Abraham starts out and says, you know, if there are 50 righteous people, will you destroy the city? And God says, no, I won't destroy the city if there's 50. And Abraham keeps working down, you know, goes down to 40 and then 30 and then 20, and then gets down to 10. And that's when he stops. Now, the reason for stopping at 10 is perhaps a whole study in itself. But what's important is that at that point the dialogue ends and we can walk away with the understanding that if there were nine righteous people in a society then God wouldn't necessarily let that society continue to exist and if he were to cause that society to perish those righteous people that are sitting in that society may perish you know, along with them. So uh, there's that, I guess, that very important point to consider, that the righteous can perish along with the wicked. Uh, a, a tsunami does not discriminate between who happens to be on the beach at the time. Neither does a hurricane. That doesn't mean that God can't intervene in the lives of particular people for particular reasons if they're on a, a level uh, of deserving God's special providence. But to the best of my knowledge, there's no guarantee that that will always happen in a particular case. Consider this analogy. If you discovered that your house had an infestation of poisonous spiders and you did nothing about it, and one of those spiders bit your small child, and the small child died, would any of us wonder, well, why would God allow such a thing? And I would say, no, we wouldn't. We would wonder why the owner of the house didn't do something about the spiders once he found out about them. 
Why didn't he take appropriate action? Why didn't he bring in the exterminators? And it's the same with society. If a society allows groups to operate and flourish when those groups have a clear agenda to destroy the society or overthrow it or to murder anyone who doesn't agree with their belief system or whatever it is, then it is possible for innocent people to die. We do live in a world of cause and effect. And if we live one way, we get one set of results. If we live a different way, we get a different set of results. And it is the same thing with societies. Societies do one thing, you get a certain set of results. You do something else, you get a different set of results. Now, in the realm of Torah, a great Torah mind is highly skilled and trained at thinking unemotionally. The training of Torah teaches one to be able to think clearly and unemotionally, which avoids the problem of our emotions clouding the reality. And we've talked about that before in our last uh, couple of classes, how our emotions can, uh, can cloud our reality and prevent us from seeing uh, what's really going on. Clear thinking, by contrast, allows us to see reality more clearly. And so someone knowledgeable in an area who can think very clearly about it will be able to give us the most rational approach to a problem or a situation. Uh, and I want to just share with you, you are probably familiar with it, uh, the opening words of the book of Joshua. Uh, let me just quickly to that. Chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> and uh, God is addressing Joshua and uh, says, only be very strong and courageous to observe, to do, according to the entire Torah that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not deviate from it to the right or to the left in order that you may succeed wherever you go. This book of the Torah shall not depart from your mouth. Rather, you should contemplate it day and night in order that you observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way successful and then you will act wisely. So here, interestingly, is what we could classify as a formula for success. To be constantly involved in the world of learning and ideas which trains the mind to Think clearly and be able to see a situation clearly. Um, and this idea transfers to virtually every area of thought. So, for example, while the Torah may not give us all the specifics in a particular area, such as you know medicine or technology or warfare, it does give us the overall approach. And the approach is based on rationally analyzing a problem or situation. So. If a society operates irrationally and people are hurt or killed, God will not necessarily intervene and save someone that we might consider to be righteous. Uh, and again, we see that from the story of, of uh, Abraham and Sodom. And as further, I guess, evidence of this, it's important to note that prophets are not even accorded protection sometimes. Uh, a number of them were killed. There's a real interesting illustration of this 
um, in the book of Elijah, or in the uh, story of Elijah in uh, 1 Kings um, chapter uh, 18, <clears throat> in the first part of 19. You may be familiar with this story. Um, uh, Ahab, who is a, uh, has a, a wicked king, uh, has uh, sent messengers to all the Israelites and gathered uh, his prophets, quote-unquote, at Mount Carmel. These were prophets of, of Baal, the uh, idol of the time. And Elijah stands up to all the people, and he got this whole crowd gathered here and says, you know, how long are you going to hop between two crutches? If God is the Lord, follow him, and if it's Baal, follow him. But the people wouldn't answer him. And uh, Elijah says, you know, I'm the only prophet of God that's left, and there's 450 prophets of Baal, so I'll tell you what we're going to do. Uh, let's each be given a couple of oxen. And, um, you know, Baal's prophets can choose one ox and, and cut it to pieces and place it on the wood without setting it on fire. And I will do the same. I'll prepare an ox and place it on wood, the wood without setting it on fire. And, you know, you guys cry out in the name of your God, and I'll cry out in the name of my God, and the God who answers or replies and fires the true God. And so the people said, okay, that's a great idea. So imagine this. You've got this huge crowd. One guy, okay, 450 prophets of, of the idol. And so they go through this whole process, and again, you're probably familiar with the story that uh, they, they go from morning until noon calling out to their God and there's no sound, no answer and they do all these things trying to apparently get his attention and Elijah starts mocking them and says, you know, call louder for he's a God, perhaps he's having a chat or hunting or away on a journey or, you know, perhaps he's taking a nap and he'll wake up and uh, they cried and they cut themselves with swords and spears and bled and did all this crazy stuff and so finally, Elijah, you know, says to the people, come close. And he clusters around them, and he repairs the, the damaged uh, altar of Hashem. And uh, uh, eventually, you know, sets up the altar and puts some stones in place. And then, if you can imagine this, now you, you think about this, you got an oxen cut up on some wood. He tells them to fill up four jars of water and pour them on the burnt offering and on the wood. And so they did this. And then he says, do it again. And then he says, do it a third time. Now, by this time, you've got water flowing all around this thing. And he fills up, you know, and it fills up a trench around it with water. And God, uh, Elijah appeals to God. And fire comes down, consumes the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust even licks up the water in the trench. And all the people saw it, and they were, you know, they said, they bowed down and they said, God's the Lord. Um, and Elijah tells them to seize the prophets of Baal, um, and they slaughter them. And so you would think, okay, Elijah's doing this thing, and it's so very convincing to all these people. Uh, and yet we read in just a few verses later that Ahab, the wicked king, goes back and tells Jezebel, his wife, who was really evil, everything that Elijah had done and how she'd, he'd killed all of Baal's prophets. And Jezebel sends a message to Elijah saying, so shall the gods do to me and more if I do not do to you as you did to them. 
So basically, he puts out a contract on her, or she puts out a contract on her. And the next verse, and it's the reason I'm telling you this entire story, in chapter 19, verse 3, says, he realized, this is he being Elijah, he realized she was serious, and he proceeded to flee for his life. He arrived at Beersheba in Judah and left his servant there. He realized she was serious, and he proceeded to flee for his life. Wait a minute. Why is he running? I mean, he's the prophet of God. You know, he's standing up doing this thing in front of all these people and 450 prophets, and now he's running for his life? Where is the protection? And what I have been taught from my rabbinic mentors is that when you are specifically on a mission for God, then you may have, or you would have, if you, you know, you're in a situation like Elijah, you have his divine protection. But once that mission is over, you're like anybody else. And he couldn't just stand there and say, well, come and get me because God's on my side. He ran for his life. So there is, as we see, to the, again, to the best of my knowledge, no guarantee. And yes, we hope that, you know, uh, a person who is righteous, that God will intervene, but it does not always occur. Um, so we can't just say um, that, gee, the world ought to work this way. Uh, we can't just wish it would be the way we want it to be. We have to recognize the true reality of the world and operate in accordance with that. And the Torah is the book that teaches us about the world that God created and how we can best operate in it, and that requires us to operate from our intellect, not from our emotional fantasies or our emotional projections or our desires of, oh, gee, it really ought to be this way and not the other. It may be our wish that God would protect each person from tragedy, but that's not the type of world that God created. Um, the Torah teaches us about when God intervenes, and when he doesn't, and when God does save a righteous person, and when he doesn't. And that is a huge study in and of itself, uh, and, and a very important study. Uh, it may be our idea that God should save every righteous person, but we have to turn around and subordinate ourselves to the way that God runs the world, not the other way around. Uh, God does it the way God does it. And God judges not only individuals, but also societies. And when a society is judged or when societies do things that create situations or conditions where bad things can happen, a righteous person, again, to the best of my knowledge, can be caught up in this. And this does make perfect sense when we view the world as operating in accordance with rational laws of cause and effect. It's not very appealing to our emotions because we like the idea um, that um, that uh, you know God is going to step in and save the people that we think you know ought to be saved in any given situation. And Pat, I'm seeing your question. Uh, so are you saying the rabbi and his wife in India their mission was over? No, I'm not saying that at all. And when I talk about mission, I'm using that term in a very specific sense of that if God speaks to a prophet and tells them to go do something, then 
one may assume, I think, that God is going to give that prophet divine protection during the course of that particular activity. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, that none of that is going on in the world today. So I, I can't speak specifically about the situation with the rabbi and his wife and, and uh, kind of how that all works because, I mean, the, God's judgment is beyond our, our, our capability of understanding. But the point I'm trying to make is that we live in a world of cause and effect and that even people that we would view as righteous can be uh, caught up in negative circumstances or you know, laws of nature or something that can happen. Uh, and that's the way life works. Uh, you know, if, if uh, heaven forbid, an airplane goes down, and there's a righteous person on board, uh, you know, most of the time, uh, as far as I know, there's not going to be a necessarily a special dispensation for the righteous person. Now, there is a whole system of God's providence uh, that we would have to study, you know, about when does providence, uh, when does God particularly... Uh, you know, and act special providence over someone, how does that work, what does that mean, and so forth. That's a, that's a, a study beyond the scope of this course. But what I want to get across is the idea that uh, when, when people say, well, how could God allow something like this to happen? Generally speaking, if we go back and look at just plain, simple cause and effect, we would say, well, God didn't make that happen. Man did that. You know, people are the ones that cause different kinds of things to happen, and there are consequences uh, to action. And Pat, you ask, so if Hashem doesn't give that person the mission, they're not under his divine protection. I can't tell you for certain when a person is under God's divine protection and when they're not. It is my understanding that when a prophet is given a specific set of instructions by Hashem, as we see with Elijah and, and some other prophets uh, in, the, in the Tanakh, it's my understanding while they are doing that, they are under divine protection. After that, you know, uh, they're, as far as I know, uh, under the same, you know, or maybe under the same laws of nature uh, as, as everyone else's. The whole question of when does God's providence come in to play in a person's life and, and when does it not, um, you know, is, is, as I say, a whole in-depth study that we would have to devote uh, a, a full course to, and probably one that I would actually leave to uh, let a, a rabbinic scholar talk about. <clears throat> but we do live in a world of cause and effect, and what is within our power is to know and understand and learn about that world and take whatever actions we can take uh, in order to uh, both protect ourselves and protect uh, the societies. If you think about, and uh, I can't recall if we've touched on this, uh, the story of Jacob when uh, Esau comes to meet him uh, with 400 men. They haven't seen each other for a while. You may recall Esau is pretty mad when Isaac dies because he feels like Jacob has stolen his birthright. And the next time they see each other, uh, Isaac is coming to, or Esau, excuse me, is coming to uh, Jacob with 400 men. Uh, clearly a sign that, you know, this isn't a neighborly visit. And 
Jacob does three things. He separates his camp into two. And his reasoning being, if one group gets attacked, the other group will be able to escape. That is preparation for war. He also sends a whole series of gifts to uh, his brother Esau, spaced carefully apart so as to sort of maximize their ability to assuage his brother's anger. That's preparation for peace. And then he prays to Hashem. And this is a beautiful illustration of the way the Torah teaches us to operate in the world. We have to do everything in our power to deal with the physical circumstances that we find ourselves in and, uh, and, and prepare for you know, every contingency that we can. And then we pray that God will take care of the things that are outside of our control. But we can't expect God to take care of the things that are inside of our control because, you know, God would probably be very justified in saying, well, I've given you control over that. You take care of it. You know, again, a little bit like the logical consequences if I junk food for 20 years. Well, gee, what did you think was going to happen? Uh, you know, if your liver's all shot by the time you're 30 or 35. So, um, and uh, Mona, I appreciate your comment. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh, and blessed be the name of the Lord. Yeah, there's a, there's a bigger system going on, and we certainly, you know, can't know God's full picture, but we can know that God knows the full picture, uh, and we can have confidence uh, in that. Um, so I would suggest to you that one of the most difficult challenges that we face is to accept what the Torah tells us about God and how God interacts with the world because it isn't necessarily going to be in accordance with our personal emotions and it's not necessarily going to be very emotionally appealing. Uh, the Torah is very, very straightforward about things. Um, and you'll notice as an example, uh, the Torah is very open about, you know, talking about uh, mistakes and shortcomings of uh, the major figures uh, in in the uh, in the stories that we read, uh, it doesn't hide anything. You know, it, it doesn't try to make out people to be uh, flawless heroes. You get to see them, as, you know, uh, Moshe and, and his hitting of the rock, and the fact that he doesn't go into the promised land uh, because of that. And you get to see some of the uh, the, the mistakes that you know some of the the greatest. Uh, Torah people made along the way. The Torah is very <clears throat> clear and open about that. And sometimes uh, that stuff is is not as emotionally appealing as we would like it to, particularly for um, those of us who came out of a strong background of another religious approach, uh, some type of different religious approach, if that religious approach was very emotionally based, uh, and a lot of them are. It's, it's a very difficult and challenging transition. Uh, so we, again, need to go over correct ideas so that we can see them clearly uh, and ultimately have those ideas affect us. Does this make sense? And, and are there any questions or, or comments? And Jack, particularly uh, welcome for you to uh, jump in and add any comments that you might have.
Okay, uh, Pat and then thank you. Um, I, I don't think, given the time, and we're quite close to the top of the hour, I don't want to uh, open up another uh, topic at this time, but um, I, I felt this whole question of, you know, how can things like this happen and uh, so forth is an important enough one, especially as we see so many events going on in the world, uh, and so many of them sad and difficult to take and uh, things we just would probably brand as uh, awful and, and despicable that we understand how this works with the things we we uh, look at in Torah and how God relates to the world. Uh, so I felt like this was an important time to uh, to cover that. Um, just a reminder again uh, that we will not have a class next week, December 7th, for those of you that came late, uh, but we will pick up again the week after that. Uh, it would be, I believe, the 14th uh, with this class. Uh, and if no one has any other questions, and when I see that reading from the Garden of Amina, I'm not familiar. I haven't read that title, but. Uh, glad to hear that uh, that is is good. Um, and Linda, you know, you raise an interesting point. Uh, all things come from Hashem, both good and evil. Uh, we can. There's a real interesting discussion that could take place around. Well, gee, if evil things happen in the world, God created the world. How could that be? Uh, does that mean God created evil? And I would suggest that no. But what God did create in us was uh, free will and the opportunity to make choices about how we use knowledge and how we use wisdom and uh, the types of things that we do with the knowledge and abilities that we have. Uh, and, you know, as you all know, you can take knowledge and, and wisdom and use it for good. Uh, you can also use it uh, to do uh, improper things. And that's uh, one of the opportunities that God gave us, and it's incumbent upon us to use it as, uh, as you know, we see fit. So I would say that God didn't create evil in the sense that we think of that, but certainly did create the uh, the free will of man, and then man chooses to use that uh, in whatever way he did or whatever way he does, and then we get to experience the consequences of that. Okay, any other questions or comments? Jack, you mentioned created the possibility. I believe that would be a correct statement. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, created the possibility for evil because by creating free choice, that created that possibility. Um, and Mona, uh, this is probably a whole uh, study in itself. Um, the sages say that, um, and we haven't discussed this yet in the class, but uh, the, the Torah sages teach that each person has an inclination for good and an inclination for evil, and that we have a constant battle going on within us uh, between those two. Uh, and that when the term Satan is used, it means the same thing as the individual evil inclination that we each have. It is not a separate being that is in kind of a war with God 
uh, kind of thing, but that it is the evil inclination uh, within uh, within each one of us. Um, and I'm not sure you said possibility of evil inclination. I'm not sure what you're asking there. If you uh, <clears throat> want to elaborate on that. Uh, And Jack, you've mentioned it's only for a period of time, and I'm going to ask you, I think, to, if you are comfortable doing so, uh, uh, take the microphone on that one, because I'm not sure what uh, what your thoughts are on that. Um, Edna, you said Jack said the possibility of, and I thought of being an inclination. Yeah, I mean, we were created with, uh, you know, with that, and... Uh, yet it's our choice as to how we utilize that and uh, you know what results we make from that. Okay. Ah, okay, Jack. Thank you. Evil will be eradicated at a time. Yes, there should be a point. Uh, in the future where uh, there will hopefully be no more evil. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and Terry and Laura, yeah, a very interesting point. When we are given free will, we can choose whichever direction. Uh, Shem makes it easier to go into that direction. That is true. There's a, uh, if, if one, uh, you know, desires to do good, then the way is made possible. And if one desires to do evil, the way is made possible. Uh, and you know, people have the opportunity to take what they've been given uh, and move in whichever direction they choose to go. So, okay. Uh, and if there are no more questions, Mona, I see you're typing something, so I'll give you just a second more. Uh, oh, thank you. Appreciate that very much. Uh, again, my thanks to all of you for joining. And uh, wish you all the very best and uh, look forward to talking with you again in two weeks. Everyone be well. Thank you. Uh, great class, Doug. I uh, hope everyone can hear me okay. If you just let me know. And then I can go ahead and get the recording started. If the volume's okay and I'm not driving you out. Thanks, Doug. Hey, by the way, did you get to listen to the tape I sent you by Rabbi Chase?